Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making people healthier in this world. I'm really enthused. I'm really excited today to have Gary Rochelle on the show. Gary is the founder over at Chiming Venture Partners. He's done a lot of interesting stuff between China and US. He's going to go uh, a little bit deeper on some elements of healthcare as a, what's the differences between China and US, what's going on in China with, with healthcare. But I'm not going to steal his thunder. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Anthony. Good to be here. Great to have you. Thank you for making time. Thank you for, you know, hopefully sharing your story with us. So Gary, transport us back, teleport us back to the beginning or maybe what are the series of events that you went through to make you the person that you are today? Tell us a little bit about your origin story. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the, the brief version is uh, I'm old enough to have tested the first chips that ever went in an IBM PC for uh, Intel <laughs> back in 1979 to 81. Awesome. But uh, you know, I was an immunologist at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. But I was broke coming out of school, so I took a job at Intel, worked at Intel, decided to stay in business, went to business school, and then went to a computer startup called Sequent. Um, and during that time, I started to set up their international operations, and one of the things I did was move to Japan in 1989 and met a gentleman there named Masayoshi Son, who's the head of SoftBank. And SoftBank at the time was a small publishing and software distribution company, but Mas and I became friends. And so when I left Japan, I headed up Cisco's uh, global sales channels and also created a joint venture for Cisco in Japan, which mm. involved SoftBank. And so that's where Moss and I had, had really connected more on business. And so in 95, he asked me to head up SoftBank's venture capital group. So starting November 1995, um, we set up SoftBank Venture Capital in the U.S., and that was the precursor to the various things that SoftBank's done on uh, on venture, including you know the now quite famous SoftBank Vision Fund. Mm -hmm. But one of the one of the things that happened was in 1999, I started traveling over to China to help set up the SoftBank China Venture Capital Group, and subsequently something called Safe Partners, SoftBank Asia Infrastructure Fund, mm. and. That is really where I started to get exposed more deeply to what was happening on the China VC side. So that was the 1999-2001 timeframe. And then the uh, as there, there's often a strange twist in some of these things. Uh, my wife, Yuka, and I were having dinner, and we talked about, well, why don't we take the kids out of school for a year? And so we said, we'll spend six months in Europe and six months in China, and then we'll come back to Silicon Valley. We got to China, and... I, because of the relationships I'd had before with SoftBank, you could sense that you were you, you were experiencing the institutionalization of the venture capital market. This is the mm -hmm. end of 2004, early 2005. Mm -hmm. So we wound up staying in China for 12 years. Um, we wow. set up Chiming Venture Capital starting in 2000, November 2005 and uh, wound up leaving at the end of 2016. And it was a phenomenal, uh, really phenomenal experience. Um, I would say... One of the things that really struck me when we were doing the research on what to do in China on a venture capital perspective was how little venture capital was actually available there. There was less than a billion dollars a year there um, in the 2005 timeframe. Um, 2004, 2005 just touched a little over a billion dollars of available venture capital. And healthcare in China at the time was only about two, a little over 2% of GDP. 
So I'm not that smart, but you look at that and you say, there's absolutely no way that number can go down. Mm-hmm. And so we put together a dedicated team in uh, 2006 uh, to pursue healthcare investing. Mm. And one of the, when you look at what's happened in China over the last decade, now, you know, 15 years, the, the year that I had moved to China, there was actually one new novel compound approved for uh, release in China, one new novel pharmaceutical. Mm-hmm. Last year, there were 250 locally developed novel compounds and 167 foreign compounds. Mm. So you see, you just saw this and experienced this incredible explosion, um, and it of of research, innovation, and products getting through the pipeline. Um, that was really quite uh, you know quite remarkable. So, but the the real genesis of this was just the idea that we would have a dedicated team back starting in two thousand six to do nothing but healthcare for Chi Ming. Mm. Mm. Gary, no, I love it. I mean, so, so such an interesting background in multi, multiple dimensions, right? So uh, in terms of firm, you've seen the venture capital movement, geography between U.S. and China, and, uh, you know, from a company perspective as well, not to mention, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of front and center to see the contrast between, you know, two interesting phenomenons the U.S. and China, um, insane jump from one to 250 and just on the pharmaceutical side. It's exciting. Um, Gary, tell me a little bit about, you know, maybe one or two things that you're seeing in healthcare. Maybe it's as it relates to China. You know, one topic we haven't really uncovered and unpacked a lot is, you know, what's going on with, with healthcare in China? What are the, uh, the new innovations? How is it different than the U.S.? Um, what's, what's happening? Maybe you can kind of give us that, that overview and, and tell us most specifically what, what you're passionate about in this space. Uh, just love to hear more. Okay. I think, so start with some things that are similar. So there, mm-hmm. there was an interesting study um, back in 2005. Um, folks were looking at different causes of mortality. There's a group called IMHE in Seattle, Washington that studies causes of mortality. And in China in 2005, if you listed the top 10 causes, only one of their top 10 was the same as in the U.S. Mm. And today, seven of the top 10 are the same. Mm. And what that, what you attribute, people attribute that to a variety of things. One is, of course, the lifestyle changes as China's become wealthy. They have had uh, changes in diet and so on. But there's also been huge environmental impacts, um, air quality, water quality, uh, you know, quality of food. And so we've, we've unfortunately for the Chinese, you've moved to the point where they have the same kind of long-term chronic disease states uh, that the U.S. has. It's the largest diabetes population on earth. Um, they have 115 million people that are uh, diabetic uh, mm. you know, in China, either diagnosed or undiagnosed. And so when you look at, so you look at this and you say, okay, um, you have these causes, these environmental causes, food quality causes, etc. You have life, dramatic lifestyle changes. And what you're hoping when you set up a fund to invest in this, that you can prevent China from making some of the same mistakes we have in the U.S. and provide some of the care at a lower cost. Um, mm-hmm. just because if, if, if they get to the point where they're spending 18, 19 percent of GDP on their healthcare system, they'll bankrupt the country, right? Um, especially with the with the aging population that they have. So we looked at this as how do you do things in China 
at the same level of quality as the U.S., um, but at a more, more maybe more efficient or more effective, you know, cost of delivery, cost of development. Right. So the the benefits that China had is this massive number of what we called sea turtles, the returning Chinese that had worked in all the international labs for the pharmaceutical companies, uh, Medtronic device companies, etc. They went back to China and they were part of those R&D labs. And when venture capital exploded in China, starting around 2005, money became available for them to do spinoffs and startups where they could go provide native, uh, just good enough um, solutions uh, for some of those chronic disease uh, states that were emerging in China. Mm-hmm. And so we, we took the initiative to back quite a number of companies that um, were capable of satisfying those needs. But what was really interesting was over time, what you found was that the Chinese consumer, the Chinese patient, if you will, mm-hmm. demanded the same level, the same quality of service that a U.S. patient, a European patient would want. And so what the big transition was, what was just good enough in, for China in 2005 was relatively restricted to truly being just good enough for China, but not the rest of the world to, to, to today, where what's being developed and what's being released is really just good enough for the world. So just good enough for China because of the increasing um, requirements and uh, you know, pickiness, if you will, of the Chinese consumers and patients is now good enough for the world. So we've seen the base go from developing just really for China to developing in China, but for the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that look like, at, you know, as China develops for the world? You know, so so maybe you can tell us a little bit of a story that kind of alludes to the future of, you know, maybe, you know, whether it comes to a specific new diabetes medicine or someone in China gets diagnosed. I mean, do you see, you know, a prescription for a certain pharmaceutical um, available for that person in China? Do you see the same thing available for, you know, someone that that maybe has healthcare coverage in Venezuela or doesn't, or, you know, same thing with someone in Russia. I mean, how do you see the dissemination, the cost factors and application of, of some of these innovations coming to fruition? Um, you know, assuming China's the source for some of these things. Yes. So, so it, it, it's a progression. So it starts with things that are discrete. So it start it starts with non-invasive devices, Mm-hmm. Uh, contact contact lenses and things. You wind up having a large part of the world's manufacturing for those products. You know, move to China. Mm-hmm. Um, then you get into then you get into moderately invasive uh, products such as stents and so on. So the Chinese stent market has a significant global share. Uh, Chinese uh, medical implants significant global share. Um, then you get into unique development. So there's a company Venus MedTech that's a Qingming portfolio company that has a uh, transcatheter heart valve mm-hmm. that even the folks at Medtronic, Edwards, and so on, they said, wow. So it, it is not, was not only first in its class, but it's now viewed as, you know, at, at the world standard. Mm-hmm. And so that was designed, developed, and now is being manufactured in China. The last piece is pharmaceuticals. Mm. Um, there's not a lot, there has not been a lot of trust because of problems, historical problems with China's FDA and their approval process. Um, the U.S., uh, despite the fact that China modeled its entire FDA process on the U.S. and it's virtually identical, mm-hmm. what China was, China wasn't doing was China was not enforcing mm-hmm. um, its own rules. 
And so the system was incredibly corrupt. And so at the beginning of 2006, 2007, they actually arrested the head of the FDA in China and they executed him. Wow. Because the system was, just, and it was to send a message, but it was also to say, we, you know, we, we cannot do what we need to do as the FDA in China for the Chinese people unless we just dramatically clean this system up. And to their credit, over a three to four year period, that system really you know, did go through a gut-wrenching series of changes to the point now where China will, ex- and some, the other thing China did that helped new drugs come to China because of the demand of the patients and the consumers who say, used to say you could not begin a phase one toxicity trial in China until a drug had actually gone all the way into phase three in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So if you're, a, if you're an entrepreneur in the U.S., you know, that might be five, seven years away. So you're not going to be thinking about China in the early stages <clears throat> of your company development. Mm-hmm. So what, what they wind up saying is, no, once you pass toxicity in the U.S., then you can actually start initiate and apply to initiate trials in China. Mm-hmm. So that took five years out of the process. And what you find in China is it's much easier to recruit patients because it's such a huge population. And right. the cost of running a trial is about a third of that of the U.S. So mm. now that the U.S. FDA, the China FDA actually will accept data from each other and you have the ability to start trials earlier, you really have a wave of really interesting new therapies addressing the needs that the Chinese population has. Mm. So, so, so there's been some really, really interesting and I think very positive migration of the two systems over the last uh, decade or so. And uh, along those notes or, or along those lines, um, what's pretty interesting is do you, do you have a thesis that like, say take the next time horizon of like the next 10 years or 20 years, do you see the percentage increase of chronic and episodic diseases in China accelerating that of the U S obviously the numbers are much larger, but do you see a higher percentage of people in China getting healthier as opposed to the U S or do you have a, do you have a, too too early to see yet. <laughs> I, I think it's too early to see. I think we have to find out. We have to find out what they wind up doing with uh, you know the asthma population, for example, in China has exploded mm-hmm. because of all the air quality issues. Um, those are not the environmental issues are not easy ones to fix. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can pull a drug a bad drug off the market. You can you know find a company on the environment cleaning up the land cleaning up the land, cleaning up the soil, or cleaning up the air, the land, and the water in China is probably a, it's a significant percentage of GDP every every year for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I think that we have to see how, how that plays out. What I do think um, we're going to see is China has evolved now where I believe it's the largest prenatal or it is the largest prenatal genetic testing you know, country. Um, mm-hmm. There are more there are more cell therapy trials going on in China than there are in the United States. There are more gene therapy trials in China than the United States. Mm-hmm. And so now that now that they've reached rough, I won't say parity, but in many ways they've reached rough availability of some of these more advanced therapies, you know, the trial process in China, again, because it's cheaper and is more easy to recruit, it's very attractive uh, right. for companies to be doing to be doing trials in China. So we're seeing a real acceleration in precision medicine and the cell therapy, gene therapy area, to where I would expect in the next several years, those markets, the U.S. and China, will be roughly equivalent, roughly the same in terms of quality and capability. I love it. I love it. No, it's it's super exciting and fascinating. All the possibilities that are that are in front of us. 
Um, I, I guess, um, you know, we have a lot of listeners that run health tech companies, um, a lot of payers and provider executives that listen, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, what, so when I did my MBA and I went to Shanghai and Beijing, I remember going to like the different government and, um, you know, business, like, you know, business distribution areas. And they were give overviews about, you know, what it's like to do business in China. If you start a business in the U S here's what you need to do. There's some hoops that you need to jump through, but um, so I still probably have a little bit of, I think a lot of founders have, whether you're in hardware or software or, you know, med tech and hard innovation or soft innovation, I think there's still a lot of stigmatization of like, oh, don't worry about China yet. You got to focus on US. You got to distribute in the US. You got to dominate US first before you even think of China. But what would you say to, you guys have invested in a lot of hard and soft stuff. What's the, 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 the words of wisdom that you would partake for, whether it's a, a founder that is thinking about China, what's the current mental model that you have and what wisdom would you partake onto or, or, or supply to that founder of how they should be thinking about China? Are there new mechanisms? Is there new ways of thinking? Like, you know, I know here at Health Hero, we have, you know, an API and we have developers building off of it. You know, we always thought like, man, there's a lot of developers in China you know, but how do we get there? Do we need to set up a subsidiary and things like that? Obviously, I don't just love to hear your thoughts on how, how founders should be thinking about China these days, especially when they start in the U.S. I, it's a great it's a great question. It covers and it really differs quite a bit by the, by sure. the different sectors. Sure. I think if you're doing if you're doing software development, um, if you're sensitive about your intellectual property or feel that the goal is just the development, but not tapping the, cons the customer base, then mm -hmm. I'm not sure that you would do the development in China. Right. You would do the development in China on the soft side because you want to actually access the Chinese consumers. I mean, we have, there's a company, Guahao, that uh, handles patient registration, patient appointments, um, now is getting into the business of actually handing, handling prescription, et cetera. They have 400 million users. Mm -hmm. Um and so there's simply nothing else like that in the world. You know, the, the apps, the software, the consumer and patient oriented apps in China are just at scales that the rest of the world can't even, can't even approach. Right. So if you want to get the best data, you want to get the best usage models, then I think doing development, doing partnerships such that you can access the Chinese consumers mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. If you're a device company, I think that the, the you know you you alluded earlier you know Anthony to the point that we we you know, we think that sometimes the U.S. is still the center of the universe, and mm -hmm. the challenge that a lot of the device uh, founders have is they go over there and they find that that may not be the case anymore, right? And that and that they have really strong competitors that have their own IP. They haven't stolen it from anyone. They have actually developed their own IP, and so then you have to ask yourself. Do you partner with those folks to get a lower cost base for your product in China? Mm -hmm. Because when you go to other developing markets, that's who you're going to be competing with. Yeah. You know, the last 20 years, the Chinese companies in tech have primarily been um, competitors only in China. Mm -hmm. But in both tech and healthcare, they're now expanding outside of China. So the Chinese pharmaceutical companies, but the device companies and app companies in particular, every time you go to a developing market in healthcare, that's who you're going to run into. Mm -hmm. And so then, mm -hmm. then the question is, how do you, you know, how do you either partner slash compete with them? What gives you the best chance to do that? And I think that's very much an individual case by case basis, but that is the new competitive dynamic 
uh, for these companies that they haven't had to think about before. I love it. I love it. No, thanks for that blueprint. I think that's a, that's a great mental model for thinking about it. And I think an updated one, I think there's a lot of founders that, you know, put their head down in the sand and they're like, you know, it's kind of like religion as you grow up. It's just like, no, I'm not supposed to question that. I'm not, you know, I'm just going to focus on us and then worry about China later. But it's important to have a, 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 a framework of understanding when and how the right timing is to incorporate China. You know, if you're in a business, in my, my standpoint, you're trying to improve society, you have to factor in China. You just have to, I think, these days and really figure out and maybe factoring in could be like, no, we did the math and China's for this specific, you know, incorporation, the way it's structured is not going to make sense for this business. And so the answer is no. And here's the reason why. But no one really does that exercise. And it could be, I don't know, in my mind, it could be a three or six hour exercise spread across three weeks, but I think a worthwhile one to do, especially as uh, product market fit is, uh, is achieved in the US, right? And, um, but, but Gary, let me ask you about the future. So we talked a lot about pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and some about software. Um, I love fringe tech. Um, I, I love to hear about maybe some other things that are on the peripheral on the fringe health tech side that you may be looking at, maybe not invested in with your dollars yet, but show some promise. Um, anything about the future you'd love to share with us, or maybe it's just an overall vision of, uh, you know, where you see healthcare going and what you, the positive effects you see society being a part of as a result of these innovations. Well, I think that, I mean, there's a, just an explosion of, uh, mm -hmm. of things around, around gene therapy, cell therapy. I mean, you, you start to see those, uh, gene editing in humans, you know, the two, the two, uh, you know, children that were, that were in born China. with much death. Yeah. And, and, and so you just have to, you just have to ask yourself, it's like, okay, those are the two that you know about that were public. Right. Do you really doubt? Do you really doubt that that's going on in in other places, perhaps in more discreet, um, you know, forums? And I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. I'm just pointing out that these technologies are going to run away from us. Um, right. You know, we don't. We don't have a. Th this is where I think the U.S. and China, in particular, need to sit down and, and can work together to say we don't want to have. Um, multiple there shouldn't be multiple standards of, of ethical behavior mm -hmm. around some of this so i think that that's one area that two countries uh, could certainly spend time working together um mm -hmm. we're seeing some really novel uh cell therapies come out where new cell types are being identified um we have a company uh that we have that we did with the blackstone uh folks that they you know we, this, this company has a material chance to uh, eliminate the need for immunosuppressant drugs after transplant rejection. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's based around a cell therapy. And so you're going to wind up, you we're just still scratching the surface yeah. on this. Um, so I think there's the whole idea that I was on the phone with someone this morning who was receiving a cancer treatment. And the whole idea is, can you stay along long enough so that you can have a very personalized ther cell therapy developed that would target that specific cancer? Mm -hmm. in that person because the genetic makeup of that person has a little bit of a unique marker so mm -hmm. we're going we're going to get there it's just it's frustrating with healthcare because there's an urgency of illness that's right in your face that you have to deal with and so it's never going to be fast enough but the trajectory for virtually all of these trends i think is uh, is, is pretty clear and i think actually working this is where when you get into issues where you can't share data, patient data right. between the U.S. and China, 
you really impair the ability to solve some of these problems more quickly. And I think that's a real tragedy for the right. uh, for the healthcare systems for everybody. And, and Gary, do you see a uh, ethics board uh, being formed on a global perspective? I don't know what the mechanism to funnel that through, right? So, you're, I mean, I know you're in D.C. today. United Nations is in you know, New York and meets in New York. But it feels like, yeah, there needs to be some sort of common handshake across all countries across the world, which would be ideal, that says, no, if we're going to do some gene therapy and some cell therapy and maybe some CRISPR stuff, Here's what we're going to do. Here are the scenarios that we're going to do it with. And here's how we're going to try and control it. Um, and there needs to be a board. Are there, is there stuff like that being formed or is there stuff like that in place for all the health tech innovations for a lot of the, the pharmaceuticals? Like who's to say on a global level that this combined with this is a bad combination and we shouldn't do that different in China versus US versus South America? Anything like that being formed, or is that that's that's still TBD and really super important for our, the planet Earth? <laughs> I, I think it's I think that's still TBD. I think every working group, so you know the Pancreatic Council Board, the folks dealing with mm-hmm. liver cancer, the folks dealing with with uh, you know heart disease, COPD, etc. Everyone has their own particular initiatives, and you know the the groups get together and talk. But I think there's a there's a higher order effect here when right. you get into when you get into editing someone's genome, I right. think that there needs to be a different, there needs to be an over, an overview and you need to get the Europeans and the Chinese, the Indians, and basically the, the world uh, together to say, this is what we, this is what we really should do. And mm-hmm. if you need, let's say you are in a situation where there is an urgent need and you need to jump, you need to jump the queue. There should be a process identified in terms of how you would do that. Right. And all of that, as far as I can tell, is uh, is something that people are talking about. But as, as far as I know, there's nothing really being put in place or being proposed. Um, you'd love to see it, but um, yeah, not yeah. Not, in the, not in the works, as far as I know. Yeah, no, Gary, this is really great. I mean, I think we can go deep on this topic probably for for a while. Um, I'm also curious as well, though. You know, like my I guess my last question on this is. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of gene therapies, and sometimes when you have cancer, there's only so much you can do. There's a there's a spiritual element to it. There's a holistic element to it as well. I know there's a lot of new sciences coming about. Like if you get diagnosed with cancer, here are you know doctors are prescribing and, and hinting to their patients like here's a diet you need to get on. You need to get on an alkaline diet. You need to you know ingest some iodine, get it through like seaweed, and you know don't eat carbs and try and fast and. Like there's all this movement of getting back to the basics and common sense of the way our bodies function like thousands of years ago. Um, do you see some of that happening at mass scale, more systematized innovations happening there, like with like prescription of herbs and medicine and food as medicine for cancer patients to serve as a basis? Because it's almost, I don't know, I look at it like golfing, like I go golfing every now and then. And, and my next time I get invited out for golf, I'm tempted to go get all the Nike, you know, golf gear. But What's probably more important <laughs> is that the night before I go, I go knock out about a hundred golf balls and then come on the, the golf course. Like I, I didn't. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's the, there's the, there's the multiple like re-engineering of a process. And then there's like the, like baseline, the process with like, great, you know, are you walking a lot? Are you eating a lot of like greens and kale? Are you, you know, do, are you getting some iodine in your diet? Have you, you know, stopped eating the potato chips? Um, any of that that's that's relevant in prescription as like a baseline before we start, you know, really mass scale, like prescribing like a lot of 
uh, um, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of think out loud about oh, you know you're hearing no, about food well, as medicine. You know, especially China. I can imagine is is a lot more uh, tendency to to gravitate towards the holistic elements of things first. Well, I think that I think there's two elements to that. So one is I completely agree that you know our lifestyle. I mean, if I take myself as an example, right? And we continue to, we continue to do things we know are not good for us. Right. And so, and so then the question is, do you, do you legislate that? Because we're all putting, we're all basically by, by abusing our bodies, putting an untold cost on the healthcare system that everyone has to help pay for. Right. Um, so do you, do you create some kind of, and maybe some of the things that China's doing with its somewhat draconian social welfare system, maybe they actually get into, you know, addressing that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, it- but, but the, but you know, that, that, that would be, that would be a, somewhat somewhat uh you know twisted uh you know positive outcome of that if they could if they could actually use that to increase the overall health of the chinese population um but so so there's an elder elements we're learning a lot about i mean neuroscience is an area where um it's you know venture capital investment has more than doubled in the last five years at a very you know growing very rapidly from here um, so we know so little of what goes on inside our head, mm-hmm. um, that, that that's clearly going to be an area because it lends itself to data modeling and it lends itself right. to some of the artificial intelligence, uh, uh, analysis that that's being developed. So, you know, I, there's no question living healthier, living better, trying to manage your, I mean, all these things are simply going to make for a better life. Um, but again, then you're you're getting into behavior modification behavior. with human beings. Yeah, that's 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 a tough thing. That's, that's tough. A tough yeah, thing to crack. That's a whole other. Yeah, that's a whole other set of uh, <laughs> of sciences of uh, the behavioral science side of things. But uh, I guess along those lines, Gary, I promise I have one more question that that follows up to that. But before I ask it, what's a good way for our listeners to get a hold of you if you would like our you know to engage with our listeners? So I am happy to. Uh, you know, have them send me email. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, do you, do you usually, do you have a way to send them, give, put the email out or do yeah, I need to announce it over? Yeah, we're going to yeah. link to it. We would link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's fine. Great. Great. No, perfect, perfect, Gary. And uh, my, my last question is on a personal well being basis, you are traveling around the world. You have been doing so. Uh, I can only imagine. I remember when I went to China, I think my stomach was so upset from the, the oily food. Uh, I had to re-baseline, and I, I, a lot of people have that. But um, what's, uh, what's something you do on a personal well-being basis, routine-wise, on a daily or weekly, monthly basis that really keeps your engine going, um, whether it's diet, meditation, or, or working out? or I'd love to just hear, like... Uh, you know, what's one thing that works for you? Well, for me, so I'm, you know, I, I, I think I'm in the top frequent flyer program for like three airlines at the same time, which is really <laughs> not, it's really not something to aspire to. So, you know, staying active. Um, I mean, all the studies say, you know, having a, a robust social network. Um, but I'll tell you when I travel two things that, that I do that I think are really important is when mm-hmm. I land in Asia the first night um, or when I come home, you always that first night have dinner or have have a social uh, evening with mm. people where you're not you're not trying to do business you're, you're there to actually you just engage and kind of give, mm-hmm. give, give your body give, give your brain a chance to settle in to remind itself where it, you know where it is right um, 
And then the other thing is we always, we always bragged about when we were younger, we bragged about how little sleep we need, right? So we always mm-hmm. said, well, I get by on four hours sleep. That is utter, excuse the expression, bull, yeah. you know what? Amen. And so get your sleep, you know, figure out what, I mean, I can sleep on planes, so I'm, I'm lucky that way without, without uh, medicines and stuff. But figure out how to make sure that you get your sleep. And executive, we travel and we pride ourselves on just plowing through. That ain't the way to go, my friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You got you to gotta make sure you carve out the time to get your rest. So I, to me, um, you know, I walk a lot. I averaged 11,900 steps a day last year. Wow. Um, but I still, but my, for me, my eating habits are terrible because I get, when I get bored in meetings and stuff, I snack. And so, I mean, if, if I had one thing that would improve my life, it would be a banning food from any meeting I'm in. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. You know, I get caught in those moments of weakness. I was just telling my wife last night as well. Yeah. You know, when, when you have around the office here, um, you know, healthy stuff, but then the cupcakes come out and the cookies and it's just like, they just stare you down and just like, ah, it got me. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I like, I love the grounding, the social grounding too. There's, I think there's a spiritual, emotional element of just connecting with people that grounds you, which helps out a ton. I've also heard with, um, there's uh there's that ex wrestler Triple H and he was like on the Tim Ferriss show talking about like whenever he travels somewhere he goes to the weight room immediately and goes at least on the treadmill for ten minutes just to kind of like reset his body clock and then um and just to get moving and then sleep yeah sleep is like sleep is like the secret thing you know and uh, I, I start to learn that now and it, I think about it now it's just like oh my gosh you know you, if you could really get a good night's sleep that's just like a million bucks you know and um so uh, well first of all gary thank you for sharing i think most importantly your story thank you for sharing the innovations that you're doing thank you for the work that you're doing as well obviously you're voting with your dollars where you're at and you have but you know you're really you know putting together some interesting phenomenal pieces that at the end of the day are gonna affect population health and i i love your vision of the future uh gary sorry if we went over in time it's just because i'm you know authentically curious about these things and so i think this is gonna be a, a really great listen for our listeners out there but uh gary thank you again for being on the show love to have you back and go deeper on some of the things we just lightly touched upon well thanks anthony and good luck with the health hero thanks for thank the time. you so much all right have a great one appreciate it all right thank you all right bye bye thank you